You're listening to the Business for Good podcast, the show where you'll hear inspirational stories about companies making money by solving some of the world's most pressing problems. I'm your host, Paul Shapiro, and I'm glad you've joined us. Hello, friend. You are listening to episode 113 of the Business for Good podcast. What a streak we've had recently from the CEO of the Rand Corporation to the CEO of Corn Foods and now to the CEO of Sabra Hummus. It's quite a lot of high profile guests these past three episodes. Of course, I love profiling startup founders running hopefully one day world changing companies on this show. But it's also nice to have folks who are at the helm of massive battleships already. And that's what we have again in this episode with Joey Bergman, the CEO of Sabra, by far America's largest hummus company. By the way, do you know what it's called when one chickpea kills another chickpea? Hummicide, of course, and we are going to be talking about hummus. Now, aside from enabling hysterical jokes like that one, just how is hummus making the world a better place, you might be asking right about now. Well, rest assured that not only does hummus make my world a better place as I eat it pretty much seven days a week. But I really do think that the evidence is pretty clear that yes, hummus does actually help address many world problems. Did you know, for example, about the correlation between declining smoking rates and increasing hummus consumption? It's true. A decade ago, as American smoking rates were falling, hummus consumption was ascending, leading numerous tobacco growers to convert their fields to chickpea production instead. Now, of course, hummus didn't cause the decline in smoking, but it did offer an incentive to a once powerful constituency, the tobacco growers, to switch to a more wholesome industry. Hummus is also a favorite of those seeking to eat plant-based while still getting a satiating snack or meal. It's pretty much a mainstay in any plant-based party, and it's a lifesaver for people who travel a lot and want to eat vegetarian or vegan food all over the world. In fact, in the Middle East, the birthplace of hummus, it's not eaten as a dip like it is here in America, but rather hummus itself is the bulk of the meal, enjoyed literally by the bowlful, as I have personally witnessed and enjoyed while I have been in Israel. Some people even think that hummus may be among the key ways to unite the Middle East, where various cultures have been enjoying hummus for thousands of years. But one place where hummus hasn't been enjoyed for millennia, here in North America. Yet one Israeli company set out to change that, Sabra, which has ignited an explosion of interest in hummus since it entered the market, especially since the company sold half of its shares to Pepsi, which accelerated hummus's popularity here in America. Today, Sabra sells hundreds of millions of dollars of tubs of hummus annually, and it is by far the largest player in the hummus sector. In this interview, We chat with Sabra CEO Joey Bergstein about all things hummus, including why he thinks hummus is such a force for good in the world, including why chickpeas are the OG of regenerative crops because they fix nitrogen from the air into the soil, and how Sabra can do even better. It's a fun interview that I think you'll enjoy. Joey, welcome to the Business for Good podcast. Paul, it's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I've been a uh, a cyber consumer for a very, very long time. And uh, interestingly, I know you were the CEO of Seventh Generation for many years as well. And I've also been a Seventh Generation consumer for many years. So I feel like our lives have intersected in a, a number of ways here, unbeknownst to you. <laughs> Fabulous on both fronts. <laughs> I actually have a theory uh, on, on hummus, which is uh, that Hummus helps keep vegetarians vegetarian. And let me explain what I mean by that. So, you know, there's uh, most people who become vegetarians stop being vegetarian. It's very sad. But Mm. uh, but 
everywhere you go, like now, no matter what, there's usually some hummus dish or some something that you can get on a menu that has hummus. And so I think that it, it actually um, is not only just a delicious food, but it's something that is really useful for making uh, plant-based eating more accessible. What do you think? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, hummus is uh, an amazing, really simple plant recipe. Um good for people, good for the world around us, and, um, and increasingly more and more accessible. It's amazing how hummus has become part of the American diet over the last 20, 30 years. It's, uh, it's quite a different place. Yo, let me ask you about that, because you, you say that hummus is, is this really simple dish. So, you know, why is it that Sabra controls the vast majority of the of the hummus market in the US then? Like, if it's so simple, why don't you have competitors who are taking more? Like, wh- what is it? Two thirds of the hummus market is Sabra? Is that right? Um, yeah, it's just, but it's about, um, 40% of the, of the hummus oh, market is silver. Okay. Right. Um, so but we are by far the, the largest player in the, uh, in the marketplace. I think right. it's because we make amazing, delicious, beautifully plated food. So mm-hmm. the fact that we are serving up a, a, a simple recipe, but in a really delicious way and with a whole different variety, a variety of different ways that you can, you can enjoy it uh, with roasted red peppers on top, with pine nuts on top, with spicy uh, combinations on top. I think nobody has innovated in the way that Sabra has over time to take a very simple recipe and find really interesting ways to, uh, to serve it up to, uh, to, to people in, across, the, uh, across the U.S. and Canada. I, I can't wait to talk about these innovations with you, Joey, but I'll tell you, I, I buy the supremely spicy Sabra. That's like my, the mm. one that, that is most commonly consumed in my household. Um, but I want to talk about those innovations. It's actually relevant to something that we're going to be talking about in a little bit. But before we get to that, I, I will say like, in addition to my theory that hummus is good for the world because it it's it helps people eat more plant-based uh, it does also seem like to have some uniting factor right like i, I was in israel Absolutely. not that long ago and i went to this uh, arab owned hummus shop and i was looking around and it was jews and arabs enjoying hummus bowls and harmony right next to each other uh, nobody seemed to mind each other's presence everybody was just getting along eating and enjoying hummus so uh i, I don't know if you've thought about this like uh, that hummus may be a uniting Deeply. force in the world deeply okay so share, share deeply, your deep actually okay well, tell, tell me about it we we describe our, our company purpose as uniting and delighting the world around planet positive food and the uniting and delighting is really exactly what you described paul exactly case in point hummus is this amazing uh dish uh recipe that's been around for thousands of years uh born in a part of the world that where there's tons of conflict and yet hummus crosses all these different cultures and people enjoy it together around the table. And we think it does have this unique ability to bring people together. And that's some of the good that we can bring into the world. And mm-hmm. then, of course, we want to do that around um, food that's having a positive impact on the world around us. Um, chickpeas are an incredibly generative crop. And uh, we really want to make sure that everything we do across all of our practices are, are making the world a better place. So what do you mean by that? You use this term planet positive food, like hummus is a planet positive food. What are, there's no definition, I presume, for that. It sounds like uh, something that I, I hadn't heard. Oh, yeah, we made that. Term. Okay. All right. All right so, so, so tell me, what, what do you mean then? You're using this made up term planet positive food. What does planet positive mean to you? Sure. Well, for us, it's actually much bigger than just a sustainability agenda. Really, there's three big planks that we think about when we think about planet positive. So the first one's around nourishing the body and creating food that's good for you, um, that nourishes uh, people, that is healthy, that's clean. The second pillar is around nourishing the soul, which is all about creating an inclusive environment, both 
inside the organization, as well as with the suppliers that we work with, serving all the stakeholders that we deal with. And then the third pillar is around nourishing the ecosystems that we're part of and ensuring that we are doing, uh, we're managing our, our impact as effectively as we can, managing our waste, managing our carbon impact, managing um, the impact of our packaging. And so it's really those three pillars for us that make up what, what, what we call planet positive. Got it. Okay. So you're arguing that not only is hummus a planet positive food, but that Sabra itself, the company, uh, is a planet positive company. Aspires so, to be, absolutely. Uh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Aspires to be. Okay. Um, so just on the packaging alone, like what's special about it? I mean, I, I buy Sabra hummus. It looks like regular plastic packaging. Is there something unique about it to which you're referring here? No, I think what I described is our agenda and, and how we want to continue to ensure that we're improving the impact that we have on the world. I mean, for sure, we put a lot of plastic into the world, as many companies do. So we're working hard to ensure that everything we do um, is recyclable, where we work hard to ensure that we've got recycled content in the packaging, that we're continuing to improve the amount of post-consumer recycled content that we have over time, and that we're working on ways to uh, to use uh substrates that that aren't plastic and going beyond plastic so mm. as it relates to that it's, it's it really describes more of our agenda and the journey that we're on rather than the place that we currently sit got it well i will tell you i you know i i well you know i would like to use less plastic in my life i can tell you it is really convenient for me when i am at an airport and the only plant-based option is a little cup of sabra hummus and pretzels and uh, that is like a must purchase for me uh when i'm in the airport so i'm very grateful for that um it's uh it's something that makes it easier for me when i'm traveling as somebody who eats plant-based and um wants something satiating you know it's not, not, not just like a three dollar banana at the at the um at the airport yeah absolutely we hear that from a lot of people they're really grateful for the ability to be able to to eat sabra on the go and to have a, a sati satiating snack when you need one that you know is right. more filling than, than just regular snacks yeah yeah it is so you mentioned to me a moment ago joey that you're like talking about chickpeas and how you think they're a beneficial crop. So what do you mean by that? Like what makes a chickpea better than anything else uh, that you would think for agricultural purposes here? Well, um, chickpeas actually put a tremendous amount of nitrogen into the soil. So often we talk about regenerative agriculture um, and having rotational crops. Chickpeas are a great rotational crop in between other crops because they do prepare the earth better for what's to come after it. Um, so just the, the, the simple, biology of the mm -hmm. uh of of the um of the plant is uh is quite generative yeah so you know for folks who are not uh, as agriculturally initiated like if you think about common crops that are grown let's say like corn it's not fixing nitrogen from the atmosphere into the soil right it's it's, it's using nitrogen whereas um you know if you want more nitrogen in the soil which pretty much means you're going to get a healthier more fertile soil uh, putting nitrogen in the ground, which we typically do through synthetic nitrogen, but you can actually, you know, use these so-called cover crops like chickpeas to do that. It does seem like a um, uh, a pretty good thing to uh, to do. But have you heard of um, have you heard of a startup out actually near me in Davis, California, Joe? Have you heard of the startup called Newsicer? No, I'm not familiar with them. It's pretty cool. I'll link to uh, I'll link to their website in the show notes at businessforgoodpodcast.com. Um, but, you know, a chickpea on a dryway basis is like 20% protein, um, mm. which is not that bad, but it's also not that great. And yeah. they're, they're basically using uh, selective breeding techniques to create chickpeas 
that they are crossbreeding with pre-domesticated chickpeas, like wild chickpeas, mm. um, to increase protein content dramatically, like doubling or even more the protein wow. content. So you could get a whole chickpea that instead of being 20% protein might be 40 to 50% protein. And in that case, if, if they are able to commercialize it, you know, you're going to have a hummus that, uh, you know, is going to have double the protein, uh, which I'm sure would be favorable for you. Absolutely. Wow. I'll have to check them out, Paul. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a pretty cool company. It's a father daughter duo who's running it. The daughter is the CEO and the father, I think is, I think if my memory is correct as a uh, professor at UC Davis. Um, but anyway, uh, that's a, an, a side interest of mine, but again, we'll link to that on the show notes right. the page. Um, but I do want to ask you, uh, about how this all came to be like Sabra is dominant. As you mentioned, it's like 40% of the hummus market, but it wasn't the case that hummus was always so big, right? Like in the mm. United States, like in the middle East, obviously people have been eating it for a long time, as you know, and um, for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I actually noticed when I was there, it's not a dip, it's a meal, right? It's a meal. It's, yeah. Yeah. Like and and they literally, it. they literally eat it in the, the mornings. It, it's like grits. They would eat it before the mm. people go to the field to, uh, to have something satiating that, uh, the preparison for the day. So what it, is Saba going to make some attempt to, uh, to uh, go toward that style of hummus consumption? Like I know it's called the Saba dipping company, but is there an effort to uh, create a new type of cultural enjoyment of, of hummus that isn't just as a dip? Well, we would love to see people enjoying Sabra all throughout the day. We think that uh, there's lots of times and occasions when Sabra is a really good fit. Um, and, and in fact, I think one of the things that's made Sabia popular over time and one of the, the really brilliant aspects of how it was, uh, how it came to be in the first place was tapping into something that people really knew and understood, which was dipping. Um, and so Sabra has become part of a, a, um, a regular occasion of, um, when people are, are, are dipping chips or pretzels or carrots or, or, um, or celery, mm -hmm. um, but the biggest opportunity is for it to become a more regular part of the diet and to to use it throughout the day at different times. So that's uh, that's what we're working on. Yeah, I, I think I use it as a um, I do use it as a dip, but more often I use it as like the base of a wrap, you know, where I'll mm. put like this like thick base of it onto a tortilla and then put everything else that I want inside of the tortilla. So yeah, a lot yeah, of people use it on flatbread as well. Um, yeah. It's great underneath grilled meats as uh, at the center of the plate as well. Lots of lots of it's an amazing, really versatile food. Yeah, I was actually at uh, my friend Alex Shirazi and Anita Rolex house recently, and they did um, this Persian menu where uh, they did they used impossible beef as like a uh, kebab and then it was on top of hummus. Mm. And so you had this like really cool uh, plant based impossible beef skewer uh, along with hummus. I don't remember the brand of hummus. So I don't think I know the brand of hummus. So uh, but it was good. It, it, it was really good. But how this come to pass like you know, this is a, a company that was Israeli and then Pepsi ended up purchasing, I think, 50% stake in the company. Is that right? Um, yeah, actually, the, the company was founded almost well, over 30 years ago um, mm -hmm. by a rabbi named Yehuda Pearl. Incredible entrepreneur has gone on to, um, to start up a number of other really successful businesses. Um, he sold the business, uh, half of the business to the Strauss Group, which is an Israeli food company, as you said. 
and then um, and then eventually the other half was sold to uh, to, to PepsiCo, and so it's now a fifty fifty joint venture between the two companies. I remember them when that happened because it was a turning point in the cultural appreciation of hummus. Like put, putting Pepsi, uh, putting this into Pepsi distribution chains made it very widely available. It was kind of like when uh, Dean Foods bought White Wave and started making silk uh, mm. nas- nationally available. Like you know before soy milk was something that you found at co op and you know local uh, health food stores and now all of a sudden you could get it at walmart and that was this big transformation in the appreciation of soy milk which led to an explosion and other types of plant-based milks as well um and it seems to me like the pepsi uh, purchase of half of sabra was similar uh do you agree with that assessment joey do you think that this was like this turning point where you saw hummus start really conquering america I think it started it, it started growing even before that pretty dramatically. Certainly, um, Pepsi joining in as a joint venture partner um, brought a, a lot of you know investment and capability into the business. Uh, but the business actually runs quite independently of the two companies. Um, runs very independently, so it wasn't as simple as putting it into a Pepsi distribution chain. It was actually built by the uh, the Sabra team, which is a function of the joint venture. But that was certainly the moment in time when you started to see real growth as the distribution grew around the country. And I think it was it was much more than just the distribution growth because lots of brands could get distribution. It was really an amazing product that people really loved when they tried it. You could see people smile um, as, they're, as they're trying it. It was served in a way that hummus really hadn't been served before with this transparent packaging so you could see um, the, 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 this literally beautifully plated food. People often describe Sabra as being almost like it was plated by a chef hmm. um, with all of the, you know, the, the, the big, beautiful mound of flavor in the middle and the, the garnishes that decorate all around the, um, the sides of, of many of our, our different hummuses. And so the, the pure appetite appeal um, that came along with it and the delightful flavors, I think, were the things in addition to or that made all of that distribution actually work. Interesting. Because it it occupies uh, some pretty expensive space in refrigerators around the country. Yeah, I'm sure there are slotting fees that you're paying to to receive that, but it does look really good. Um, you know, like many, uh, I, I often joke, like I wasn't sure if it was the plural of hummus was hummuses or hummai. Um, but good question. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, anyway, just for fun, I'm going to say hummai. There are many hummai uh, brands that are just like a homogenous spread inside of a plastic container, whereas these ones have, um, as you said, they have like this. Uh, uh, either flavor or some other ingredient in the middle that you can kind of dip into and around, which is which does make it kind of a more unique experience. Um, Absolutely, and the, the amount of care actually that goes into making sure that every cup is beautiful, that that it has the the right level of ripples, that it's the right color, that the the flavoring's in the right place. I mean, it's 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 quite an amazing process to see. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking of amazing processes, like one of the things that really struck me, and this was like a decade ago, it was back in 2013, the uh, Wall Street Journal ran an article. It's called Hummus is Conquering America. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it basically credits Sabra's rise with the uh, shift toward enjoying more and more hummus as a part of like almost every occasion, whether it's the Super Bowl or, you know, whatever. And the key thing it talked about, though, in this story was that in parallel with the rise of consumer demand for hummus, American farmers had to shift and they had to start putting crops in the ground of chickpeas. And those crops were previously 
planted with tobacco. Mm-hmm. And so from 2013, uh, from 2009 to 2013, there was this fourfold increase in the production of chickpeas. And you saw a contraction of the amount of tobacco. And so it's kind of an interesting cultural point where demand for smoking is going down. So fewer acres are devoted to tobacco and demand for hummus is going up. So more and more acres are devoted to chickpeas. And it's an interesting uh, story because a lot of the times the tobacco lobby was talking about how many jobs the tobacco industry creates and how it was really important for the uh, for the economy to have all these farmers growing tobacco. And you thought, well, if people stop smoking, what will these farmers will be out of business. And it turns out that actually that's not true, that they switched to growing chickpeas. So uh, what do you know about this story, Joey? And, and you know, where are these chickpeas today being grown? And uh, do you think that there is uh, some connection between decline in smoking and increase in hummus? You know, I've never really thought about the decline in smoking and the increase of hummus, but I think that that's a great relationship. And um, yeah, if that's uh, if that's the case, and I think that hummus is having a really positive impact on the world around us, on people's um, personal health and well-being. For sure, there was a shift from um, from tobacco farming into into chickpea growing. Um, as hummus grew, the demand for chickpeas you know, grew at pace with it. Uh, today, we source most of our chickpeas out of the Pacific Northwest and um, have uh, worked with a, a tremendous collaboration of different farmers and growers there. And uh, really proud of the work that, that they've been doing and um, and in producing these incredible chickpeas for uh, for Sabra. Yeah, I'm surprised that uh, the chickpeas are coming from the Pacific Northwest because I would have thought they would be coming from somewhere that has a more Middle Eastern type climate, right? If chickpeas are from the Middle East, which I presume they are, um, I would have thought that they would grow more optimally somewhere that had a, a more Middle Eastern type uh, climate. So why is it like, would you know why the Pacific Northwest became the hub of chickpea growing in the U.S.? Yeah, I don't. I don't think that the 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 climate conditions there are actually great for growing chickpeas, um, and so I'm not sure exactly the origins of why they started growing there. But chickpeas are grown in many places around the world, so not just restricted to the Mediterranean area. Again, it's a it's a great, um, very very versatile crop. Hmm. Okay. Well, we'll look into this and see if there's some, if I can figure out why that is. And if so, I'll include it in there. Um, I, I want to get back to Joey, what you were talking about earlier with regard to innovation you're saying, okay, well, you know, we're doing the jalapeno, um, hummus, the supremely spicy hummus, the everything bagel hummus. Like I, you know, I, I got all these, I, I love them. I eat them. Um, so at what point, well, let me let me go back. First, I'll, I'll prime you with the following question. Mm. All right, we were talking about soy milk earlier. So, do you have a, an opinion? I mean, I know this isn't your field, but do you have an opinion? Like, you know, there's a fight in the dairy industry, right, over whether it should be called coconut milk or soy milk or almond milk or something else. Do you have right. any Do you have any opinions on this? Whether it matters, whether they should be allowed to be called milk, yeah, or or soy milk at least, not milk, but just coconut milk, almond milk, soy milk, things like I, that. I, you know, honestly, I think as a as a consumer, um, and we drink a lot of uh, mostly oat milk, but also soy milk. Um, I, I think it's really helpful because it places it places the product in the right occasion, it tells you how to use it. Um, and if you call it anything other than that, then it becomes just strange. And how do you how do you use something you don't really know? I think you know if you take it back to hummus, I think that was what was really smart about when hummus was originally launched. It was put into this occasion when people were dipping chips into chip dip. And yeah. so you, you knew how to use it and it became very familiar very quickly. I think that the genius of soy milk and oat milk and almond milk is, is exactly the, the same thing. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you. Uh, you're not going to find anyone more aligned with what you just said than than myself. And so that leads to the next question, which is, um, you know, their innovations, right? Like, you know, the people who are making hummus hundreds or thousands of years ago probably would not think, oh, yeah, jala putting jalapeno in hummus is something that is traditional, right? But it's good. We like it. I buy it. We all like it. It's innovative, right? So why not black bean hummus? Why not edamame hummus? Like why the companies that make, you know, edamame hummus, right? With no chickpeas at all. Does it matter? Like, why is it not the same thing? doesn't matter to me. Um, okay. You know, I think that, um, I mean, what makes hummus unique is it, I mean, hummus literally means chickpeas. That is mm -hmm. the Arabic word for chickpeas. Mm -hmm. So um, is a chickpea a black bean? It's not a black bean, but right. you know, it's yeah. literally the word for, for chickpeas, but, but chickpeas alone don't make hummus. I mean, hummus is a, is a, um, combination of chickpeas and tahini and some oil, some garlic, some spices. You know, there's there's a number of ingredients, not a lot, but there's you know several ingredients that go into to making mm -hmm. the hummus special. You know, and often it's the quality. Well, it's always the quality of each of those ingredients that makes it really special. The tahini in particular, um, uh, and and so you know, if you want to make something similar using a different bean and it tastes good, that's you know that's great. And let let uh, let people judge for themselves. Uh, I, I people will buy what they like. If it tastes good, they'll buy it. If it doesn't taste good, they certainly won't. Yeah, well, I'm totally with you. I mean, I, I'm I'm all for innovation, right? Like, I don't think we need to be trapped by what a definition used to be of something and so on. If people like a new product, that's great. Uh, the reason I ask is because, you know, uh, as you are probably familiar, uh, long before you became CEO of Sabra, back in, I believe it was 2014, uh, the company did take a position uh, and asked the FDA to create a standard of identity for hummus that would prohibit the use of the word hummus on anything that was wasn't predominantly chickpeas. I don't know whatever happened with that. It doesn't look like the FDA ever took action from what I can tell, but I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with it. And we've talked about it since I joined. And we've come to the conclusion that, you know, it would be interesting, but not necessarily all that meaningful. Um, yeah. So, you know, so at yeah, the end yeah. of the day, let's, let's focus on making, making food that people want to eat, that we yeah. want to celebrate. And our, our view is that, you know, at the moment, um, doing that with the chickpea base is the best way to do it. If we can find a way to do it with other uh, other beans then and other legumes, we'd certainly be open to that. Yeah, uh, I I also just don't think it matters. Like the yeah, and I think the exactly. same about I think the same about milk too. Like you know, silk is called silk. It's not called silk soy milk, right? It's just silk. It's this thing. It kind of it looks like milk. It's sold next to cow's milk. It's in the carton. But people have been drinking silk for a long time because they like it, right? They they know that it's not cow's milk. There's no confusion as to whether it's cow's milk. When you buy Oatly, you're not confused as to whether you think it's cow's milk. And if somebody buys black bean hummus, I don't think they're going to be surprised to learn that it doesn't have chickpeas. Um, mm. So, you know, I, I think that you know, if it tastes good, it's cost effective for people, it's healthy, like, you know, those are the things that I think are going to matter to most consumers, not really what it's called, honestly. I, I totally agree. I yeah. totally agree. Interesting. Okay. Well, I'm glad we got that out of the way. That was like this elephant in the room because I remember when that happened like a decade or so ago and I was thinking it's just like the same thing with soy milk. But anyway, um, I, I do want to ask you, Joey, before we move on to our final questions that we ask each guest, you've written before that you have a personal mission statement. And so, you know, not a lot of people do this, but you have your own personal mission statement, which you've said, I'm quoting you to spark an amazing difference in the world. So tell me about that. Like, you want to spark an amazing difference in the world. It sounds nice, but what does that actually mean? Like, what is the difference that you're trying to make in the world? Like, if you cease to exist, what would be worse off in the world because you're not fulfilling that mission anymore? Yeah, it's uh, 
Great, great question. So for me, there's there's three components of that statement. Um, so sparking, I love to work with people and building off of each each uh, each person's ideas, taking an idea and, and building it into something that's 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 bigger, better, greater. Um, for me, um, the 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 way that we work together is one of the most important things. Um, an amazing difference. I often talk about being a force for good, and I really see the opportunity with business that business should be a force for good in the world. Um, and I, I love taking on big challenges. I'm very excited about taking a, a business as a lot of potential and helping it accelerate and grow into something that that's even bigger, unlocking greater and greater potential. And then the in the world piece is just really ensuring that the things that we're doing matter and that I'm having an impact in the world. And so, you know, my my time at Seven Generation was a great example of that. I think we were creating great products that were better for the world around us. Um, and my time at Sabra was, was really motivated. I was, I was excited about coming to Sabra for a few reasons. I think as a, as, a, as a country, as a society, we're facing a combination of crises, a health crisis. Um, you know, we see more and more obesity in the world. Um, we have a climate crisis in front of us as a, as a broad global society, and we need more great plant-based options. Um, and I think hummus plays in a really interesting space also at a time where people are eating fewer three square meals a day or snacking more often and are interested in Mediterranean foods. Uh, Sabra hummus sits right in the middle of all those different things. And I think there's just a, it's this incredible business with an opportunity to be so much more than it has become already. It's already this great iconic brand and a great opportunity to, uh, to become even greater than that. Yeah. Um, well, I can assure you, I'm one of those people who definitely does not just eat three times a day. Um, there's like, I'm eating like every hour on the hour, a lot of the times. Uh, so hummus becomes important for me. And it's especially important because I shop a lot at grocery outlet. I'm sure you're familiar with them, or mm -hmm. maybe you're not. Um, yeah. But um, you guys have your product there a lot. So it's, you know, it's a deeply discounted grocery chain. Uh, often they're selling products that are like nearing expiration and so on. Uh, so I will find Sabra there for much, much less than it is uh, on sale for at, at like, you know, other conventional grocery stores. So uh, that enables me to increase my hummus consumption quite dramatically. And I appreciate that. I'm glad we can help. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so uh, let me ask you then, Joey, like if, if you think about the time that you've had uh, being an executive at these ecologically minded companies, uh, whether it's Sabra or seventh generation, like you have been running, I don't know, what's the, what was the revenue? What was the annual revenue for seventh generation when you departed? Um, well, we don't publish it because it, ah, it was part of okay. the, the broader Unilever universe, but it was, um, Substantially bigger than it was when we sold the business to uh, to Unilever, and, and you know, substantially bigger than when I joined. Got it. And are you willing to disclose in the, hundreds, the uh, in hundreds of millions? Okay, in the hundreds of millions, yeah, hundreds of millions. And Sabra, I presume, is even bigger than that. Um, yes, yeah. Well, in, in a similar in a, in a similar place. Okay. Um, so, you know, you've been the CEO of two companies that both have uh, hundreds of millions of dollars in of revenue. Presumably, you've learned a thing or two uh, since doing this. You might have relied on some resources that you thought were useful, whether it was speeches you heard, books you read, something that was actually useful. So is there any resource, Joey, that's been useful for you in your time as the captain of these two very large uh, socially conscious companies, um, ships that you would recommend for other people who want to also uh, go on a journey similar to yours? You know, I, I always love um, love things that just get me to think differently, and it can come from really anywhere. Um, one of the the podcasts I listen to, so I, I, I love to run. I try to get out five days a week as much as I can. 
um, to do a run. And, and during that time, I listened to podcasts. I listened to your podcast. Um, I'm, I, I'm, I, I'm sure you religiously listen to business for good. But in addition, what else do you listen to? <laughs> um, I also, aside from the news, I listened to, um, to Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History podcast. And I think it's absolutely unbelievable how he'll take something that you never think about and get you to think about it completely differently. And, you know, I, I think any, any resources out there that, that, uh, or any, um, stimulus to get you to think differently about things that you may come across every day, um, is a, is a great thing to happen because it just inspires you to think differently about the, uh, the issues that are in front of you. Very cool. Well, we'll link to uh, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, which I too have listened to and enjoyed um, at the show notes of this episode at businessforgoodpodcast.com. And that brings me to the final question here, Joey. So, you know, you've spent uh, your career trying to use business, as you said, for a force of good. Um, if there is some idea that you wish somebody else would start, like you've been the CEO of these two companies that you didn't start, um, but that you led to great growth. Um, but is there something that you wish somebody else would start? some problem that you wish somebody else would start a company to solve that you think would make the world a better place? Yeah, I, I, I think we, as a society, we've got a real problem with plastic packaging. Um, and the, 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 the issue is this plastics actually serves a, you know, some, some really, it, it's a very, it, it's very functional. It serves a lot of really important uses. We don't have enough infrastructure in this country to be able to take plastic into process it to recycle it so that it can be reused and, and really become a productive part of a circular economy. I would love for somebody to be able to figure out how do we make much more productive use of, of the plastic that's in the world so it can be properly processed and not end up in the, um, end up in the, the landfill. I think that would be an incredible contribution. Ultimately, it'd be great if we could, if we could transition away from plastic um, and find incredible materials that have the same um, properties of plastic. So that would be my the biggest thing on my wish list. But until we get to that, you know, the I think the much more manageable um, ask is to find some way to just to make this world a, a more circular world. Yeah, well, um, we, we've done a number of episodes on alternative plastics, um, in, including uh, biodegradable plastics and, um, and and other things. So I'll link to some of those in the show notes here so people want to go back and listen to those. Um, I will note, you know, it's interesting because obviously it'd be great to keep plastic out of landfills. Um, however, you know, the alternative for a lot of it, like nearly no plastic gets recycled. It's like less than, I think, less than 10% of plastic gets recycled. And even most of the plastic that you put into your recycling bin doesn't get recycled because it's not economical to recycle it. And uh, with China no longer taking our plastic waste, um, we you know started sending it to other Asian countries, which we were paying to take it, and it just ended up getting dumped in the ocean, basically. And so there is an argument that the landfill is actually a preferable place um, for plastic packaging, uh, because you're essentially sequestering carbon in the landfill rather than putting um, the plastic into the ocean. Um, and so until we can find something that's actually economical to do with used plastic, um, like I, 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 I'm an ardent environmentalist, but I fear that am I doing the right thing by putting it into the recycling bin? I'm not sure. It feels like almost like sacrilegious to put in the trash can, um, but I'm not sure what the right thing to do is. Well, that's why I'm saying that if we can actually get it out of the bin, we've trained so many people to put them into the bins, but they're just not making it into a recycling facility. So if we could, right. if we could fix that infrastructure and get them into the recycling facilities, that would have make a huge difference. 
Yeah, yeah, very cool. We also did an episode with a, a cool company called uh, uh, AMP Robotics, which is basically doing robotics for recycling facilities so that it dramatically reduces the cost to to recycle the plastic. So rather than having, uh, you know, humans who are manually picking up every little piece of plastic, which is extremely uh, horrible for those workers and bad for cost, uh, they have robots doing it like three times faster, which really cuts down on the cost to make it more economical to actually recycle the plastic. Mm. Um but anyway, it's really great to talk with you, Joey. Thanks so much. You have made a very consequential difference in my life through the two companies that you have been at the helm of, and I really appreciate that. And uh, I'll be rooting for your success every time I take a bite of Sabra Hummus here. So thank you. Thanks, Paul. It was great to be with you. Thanks for listening. I hope you found it useful. And if you did, please let the world know. Leave the show a five-star rating on your favorite podcast app and share the episode with your friends. Who knows? Maybe you'll inspire one of them to be in the business of doing good themselves.